You might go ahead and open up your Old Testaments to the book of Ecclesiastes. The first part of this study, we're going to be spending a little bit of time in that book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes. And so you can ready yourself by turning to that. We're fascinated by stories of other people, uh, not just in this society, but it's a matter of humanity where we share experiences and we learn from each other. We're entertained by each other. You wouldn't be entertained by me, but just humanity in general. There's a lot of incredible stories that have been told throughout the years, throughout time, and there will continue to be incredible stories that unfold. Sometimes we entertain ourselves with um, fictional narratives that are certainly captivating, and uh, we spend money to, to read of people's stories and to read of stories that others have come up with based on some true things. We look at famous people and presidents and war heroes. We, we talk about athletes and how they've come to be and celebrities and all of those kinds of things. And at times there are people who are just ordinary, who believe that their family history or perhaps their own story is worth enough to compile their own uh, narrative and their own uh, autobiography or a biography of one of their ancestors. And so we're all about telling stories and hearing stories and thinking about some things. And I think that whether it's fiction or it's actual history and well-recorded history, a well-told story of history, that we hear those stories and see them in movies and talk about them and it causes us to reflect on ourselves. We might see ourselves in a person or we might consider their circumstances as being something which reflects our own circumstances and we either do that for good or for bad. We're either encouraged and led by the example of others to do great good and to endure great trials and to do great things, or perhaps we go down a wrong path because of the stories we've heard from others. And as we live our lives, really, we are writing our own story, so to speak. I think we're very familiar with how the Old Testament and the New Testament, for that matter, was compiled and why it was compiled. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as he encouraged the Corinthians to live a holy life and to break free from sin, he'd bring up the Israelites and he'd tell them in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 10, these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. They lived their lives making their own decisions, whether by faith or in rebellion to God, whether through fleshly lusts and motivations or through spiritual revelation from on high, but they had free will. They experienced things in real time and they had to make snap decisions. Sometimes they had time to meditate on some things and make a calculated decision. And so they lived just like we're living today. And I don't think we need to forget that. But their lives are our examples. And he'd go on to say in 1 Corinthians 10, and in verse 11, 
that these things happened to them as examples and were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the age have come. I think that's pretty interesting and powerful. Do you think they knew their story would be recorded, would be written? I think maybe there would have been some understanding that they as God's people would have their history recorded. No doubt there are the inspired books of history in the Old Testament. And we even read in texts of the Old Testament of some other books of history that were alluded to that were not preserved for us. Evidently, God did not think we needed them. Did they know their story was being written? In Romans 15 in verse 4, it tells us very similarly that those things written before were written for our learning. So we take it for granted and we know that they were written. We, we read them sometimes, I think, perhaps too often, speaking of myself, as if they were just kind of a story and that's it. But these are historical accounts of people's lives. You may think about that with a man like David when he showed courage in standing up against Goliath, the Philistine champion, when no one else had the courage to do so. Did he know at that time what he was doing was being etched in history for people thousands of years later to read about and to be encouraged by, or when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop, did he take action with the understanding that what he would be doing would be recorded for us to read about, and to be warned about? Obviously, I think that we act at times without thinking about the full measure of history and the sight of God and what will be taken to account in regard to our lives. But make no mistake about it, their story was being written, and brethren, our story is being written. In Revelation 20 and in verse 12, the Bible speaks of that great day of judgment, and it tells us, John saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were open. Plural, books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. This is obviously symbolic language. I don't believe necessarily that there is a physical book that is listing every single thought we've ever had, every single action we've ever taken. But make no mistake about it. God knows and has seen everything we've done and everything we've thought. And he will judge us according to that in comparison and contrast to his story to his law, what he's revealed to us to live by. Everything will be remembered except those things that he has forgiven and will be remembered no more. And so every action we are taking is just another line in a page of a great book of our history, of our story. Do we think about what story we're writing? Do we think about what kind of legacy we're leaving? And with that, I think we should consider what kind of story we should value. What should we aim to write? What would, should we aim to live like? Because there's a lot of things that we are attracted to in fiction or in nonfiction. We want to read about war stories of great valor. Maybe great atrocities even spark our interest because we understand the darkness that we live in. We try to comprehend it more, to be on guard against it. Or maybe it's just some very vain things that might spark our interest for a moment and we entertain ourselves 
with? Well, what kind of things are we valuing in our lives? And are we writing a story that matters? And so what story are you you writing? What will your story be? Will it be a story that doesn't matter? I think that's what Ecclesiastes is really all about. We know the conclusion that the only reason we exist is to fear God and keep His commandments. And we're going to be judged for what we do in the flesh based on that law. Are we doing the Lord's will or not? But the writer of Ecclesiastes, as we know well, sets out to find the purpose of life, find fulfillment, find meaning, and he looks at all of these things under the sun. And that's a phrase you see throughout. And the idea is life on earth without a mindset on the spiritual and eternal, what is truly substantive. And he reaches time and time again the conclusion that this is vanity. It's grasping for the wind. There's no true substance there. And that's when he reaches his conclusion. None of this is the purpose of life. The purpose of life is to fear God. But I'm afraid that we make the same mistake he makes at times when we're writing our stories. And we get caught up in the whole scheme of things under the sun and we forget what is truly substantive. We need to examine ourselves and make sure we're not writing a story that doesn't matter. For example, in Ecclesiastes 4, he speaks about how popularity, among other things, not the only thing in this section, is fleeting and it doesn't matter. I think that as we live in an age of social media, and maybe this would appeal more to the youth of our congregation than others, and I want you to listen. We want the likes, we want the comments, we want the attention. That's really what social media is all about. I think it has other good uses and advantages, even spiritually speaking. I want to tell you our culture has invented social media for very vain reasons and self-promoting and fulfilling reasons. That's not what the life of a Christian is about. We should not value what others necessarily think of us. We should not value attention from others. We should not just be seeking to be popular because it's fleeting. That's vanity. Notice in Ecclesiastes 4 in verse 13, it almost reads like a a parable of sorts, a, a short story. It reads as a proverb as well. But it's about two kings. It says in verse 13, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. It speaks about an old king who's not going to be corrected anymore. But here's this young man who's coming out of poverty in prison because he is able to be corrected. He's seeking wisdom. He's hearing wisdom. And so this old king is put to nothing because he is obdurate and hard-headed. And this young king now comes into power. He's, he's a true Cinderella story. And now he has all the fame and popularity and fortune and attention of an entire kingdom. And he says, even though he got there by honest means and hearing wisdom and changing his ways and working hard, now they don't rejoice in him anymore. That's fleeting. 
He gained all the popularity there was, all that was in the kingdom, and it vanished away just like with the king before him. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't matter how many people look at you and, and look up to you and think you're just the greatest thing there is. It doesn't matter how popular you are. That means nothing. It's fleeting. You know, some put all their stock into education. And I'm not going to say that education's a bad thing. It's a very good thing. We should learn. We should look into God's world that he created and see his wisdom. And we should think with logic that he's given us and understand the wisdom that is out there, but not as an end in itself. Notice in first chapter of Ecclesiastes in verse 16, he says, I commune with my heart saying, look, I've attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem. My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is grasping for the wind, for in much wisdom is much grief. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. More wisdom in an imperfect and sinful world just leads to more sorrow is what he's saying. There's a place for knowing things and growing in that knowledge, but he's saying that if all it is is knowing life under the sun and knowing more about it than other people, all that means is I am aware of more evil than other people. It's wearisome. It's, it promotes a struggle. It causes worry and anxiety. And while there's a place for gaining knowledge, he's saying that that by itself is really useless. Notice in chapter 12 and verse 12, he said, Further, my son, be admonished by these of making many books. There is no end and much study is wearisome to the flesh. You know, as much as you can come to learn, that is a drop in the bucket of true knowledge that exists in the world today. You can't know everything. In fact, we're very selective in our knowing because it's impossible for anyone to even know a fraction of everything there is to know. And I think that it's that way to show us that that's not our purpose here. Get educated, learn. But especially young people, that's not why you were put on this earth. That's vain. Some put all their stock in their physical success that would come out of their education and the degree that perhaps they've earned. Notice in chapter 2 and in verse 18 what Solomon has to say about that. He says, I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Who knows who's going to take it after you leave, but someone will. Notice verse 20. Therefore I turned in my heart, my heart and despaired of all the labor I had done which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vanity and great evil. As much work as you put into it, eventually you're going to die. And someone else is going to get that and they haven't worked for it at all. Verse 22. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vanity. I think we've all experienced that. You're, you're worried about work. You're anxious about work. You're, you're working hard. You're thinking about it. You're stressed. You're wanting to get it done. You know you have to get it done. It's your responsibility. And you go home to rest. And that's what you're thinking about in the night. 
To what avail is that? He's saying no avail. There's a place for it. Don't misunderstand me and don't misunderstand Solomon. I think we know the point of the book. But that's not your life. There's so many Christians who have lost sight of heaven because they pursue physical success and they work so many hours and they do so many things to the neglect of their spiritual well-being and that of their families. It's a shame. He's saying this is not what life is about. There's so many people in this world who put all their stock into who they are as their net worth. How much money do I have? That's how success is measured. That's how happiness is measured. How much money is in this man's bank account? How much property does he have? What kind of car does he drive? What does he wear on his body? There's something interesting in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes in verse 10. It tells us that he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. And so it's something that you'll always be chasing. You'll never find the satisfaction that you're seeking. It is is an endless pit full of sorrow if what I'm seeking is fulfillment and wealth. As soon as I think that this is the number I have to reach to find fulfillment, I will want more. That's what he's saying. It is vanity. In chapter 2, and we won't read all of this. I think we're familiar of it. But Solomon lists all of the great things he's accomplished. All the great physical things that he's accumulated. He sought fulfillment. He sought gladness. He sought anything his heart desires. He said in verse 10, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my reward from all my labor. He looked on it and saw it was vain. Can you imagine having so much wealth that there is nothing that you could desire that you could not afford? You had so much power and wealth that there is no request you could make that would not be answered and given to you. And in all that, he says, it was vanity. You know, I want to tell you something too as we just very briefly venture away from Ecclesiastes, that even family should not be the story you're writing. I'm not saying there's not God-given value in family, that it's not a blessing from above. It certainly is. I'm a family man. And it is a very Christian characteristic to be one who is caring for family and thinking about family. But there's something that the Bible tells us in Matthew 22 and verse 30. When speaking to the Sadducees, explaining to them about how there is a resurrection and they had this hypothetical about marriage, Jesus said in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. And you remember Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 10, when some came to him and said, listen, your mother and your brother are, are looking for your 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 your." Your people are looking for you. It's not Matthew chapter 10. I believe it's chapter 12. I'm sorry about that. But Matthew chapter 12, when they said your your family's outside looking for you in verse 46 beginning. And then he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers in verse 48? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my, my brother and my sister and my mother. For Jesus to demonstrate that his physical blood and that kind of a tie was not what was most important is extremely important for us to understand. 
We need to look out for our family. We need to provide for our own. First Timothy 5 tells us if we don't do that, we're not a Christian. We're not faithful. But while they're important, they're not the all of life. There have been people who have jeopardized their standing with God to save their family ties. There have been Christians who have never truly been transformed by the gospel because what they're doing is simply to please their family. That's vain as well. And then lastly, some people put all their stock into what they will do for society. That seems like a noble thing, doesn't it? I want to leave my mark on society. I want to change the world. I'd suggest to you that firstly, that's naive. There's a lot of people that are convinced that they can do something lasting. And I'm not trying to put a damper on any of your goals or any of your noble thoughts. But when we're thinking about eternity, society does not matter. God's going to judge individuals, by the way. He's not going to judge nations in regard to eternal consequences. He's not going to judge communities in regard to eternal consequences. And so when we talk about leaving our imprint on society for very physical reasons, brethren, that's vain. Also back in Ecclesiastes, this time chapter 9 and in verse 5, notice what it says of the dead. They know nothing, he says. The dead know nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Men and women try to leave their impact. Very few do. Some live on through history, so to speak. But do we think about them often? Does it really matter what they did in the flesh if it wasn't living for God? That king in chapter 4 and verse 16, no one remembered him. No one thought about him anymore. This is not what life is about. If this is the story you're writing, to any degree, that's your focus. We ought to reconsider what we're doing. Let's write a story that does matter. You remember in Luke chapter 16, the rich man and Lazarus, how one was living a life of great sorrow and pain and one was living just as kind of Solomon described in chapter two. He had everything he needed. He was living in luxury. One was evidently living for God. The other one was neglecting spiritual matters. They both died. And Abraham said to the rich man that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And so their temporary story ended and their eternal story began. I would suggest to you that the life we're living in the flesh is simply a preface to eternity. What are we writing about ourselves? Are we worried about popularity with men and women or are we worried about our standing with God? Again, in chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, this is what Solomon concluded. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. This is what it's all about. There's nothing more to life than this. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. That's what life is about. Being recognized by God, not by your peers, not by anyone else. It's being recognized by God. You might remember in 1 Corinthians when Paul was addressing their infatuation with status 
Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Apollos. Some say I'm of Cephas. He tells them that me and Apollos were nothing. I planted and Apollos watered. God gave the increase. The whole point is to focus on God and to give Him the glory. But then in chapter 4, he did talk about himself. And he said it in this way. Let a man so consider us, 1 Corinthians 4, 1, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We've got to be faithful, verse 2. But then he would say this in verse 3. With me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. He's not saying that he did not evaluate himself to make sure that he was in the faith. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that I don't care how much you like me. I don't care about this Paul group in Corinth. That does nothing for me. I don't need followers of men. I need the recognition and the approval of my Lord and Savior, of my God. Our standing with God is of utmost importance. This is why he could say in 2 Corinthians 4, when he is on trial, that at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. When you stand alone, as a faithful Christian, you don't stand alone. That's what you should live for. You're standing with God. But along that line, instead of education, to have a standing with God, we should educate ourselves spiritually. We should put our stock into the knowledge of God. That's what the new covenant was really based on. Through His grace and His mercy, he offers it to all, which means it's not just the people born Jews that can have a relationship with me. But anyone who comes to know me, Jeremiah 31 and verse 33 explains, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. And no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. The whole relationship we have with God is predicated on us knowing him. And so that should be what we live for, to know God more. This is what John says in 1 John chapter 1, when he speaks about fellowship and standing with God and having confidence of salvation, which is what the whole epistle is written for, chapter 5 and verse 13, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He'd say in 1 John chapter 1, that word of life which our eyes have seen and we've heard, our hands have handled, we have looked upon, we have declared it to you, that life which was manifested to us. He explains in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And that very truth, the knowledge of it, not just intellectually, but on a spiritual level, practically speaking, and its transformative power is what will lead us into a relationship with God or will cause us to be separated from him. 
Because he walks in darkness and says he has fellowship with God. He's lying. And him is light and no darkness at all. He who walks in the light has fellowship. And Jesus Christ's blood cleanses that one from all sin. And so we need to know God. We need to know about his holiness. We need to know about his character. We need to know about his law. We need to know about his will. But that's what I want us to understand about this. It's not mere knowledge. It's not merely intellectual acquaintance with God and who he is and what his law is. Remember in 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, Paul was dealing with a vanity of knowledge in a spiritual sphere. And the reason I say it that way is because we just talked about how education, life under the sun given to education is meaningless. It's vanity. But I want to tell you it's also vanity to know your Bible through and through in this way. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 1, Paul said, Concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. That is the one who is puffed up in their knowledge. But notice this, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So this is not just mere intellectual exercise that we engage in that has meaning. But it's about fellowship, brethren. It's about us knowing God to the extent and in the nature in that way where He then knows us. Where we're in good standing with Him because it's a love that's coming from this knowledge. It's a conformity to His ways. And so we need to have a story being written concerning our knowledge of God, our knowledge of of Christ, but in that capacity of participation. That's what matters. There's a lot of people in the assembly today that know a lot about Scripture. And I value that and I appreciate that. That's of good use in the kingdom. But are we living it? Do we believe it? You know, I believe from this pulpit, J.R. Bronger preached a sermon about faith. And he made this statement, you believe in God, but do you believe God? Do you have faith in what he says and you've committed your life to it? Do you believe God? If we believe God, if we believe Christ, we're going to conform ourselves to him. And first Timothy chapter one, and we'll just allude to it, but. The Apostle Paul told Timothy to stay in Ephesus, to charge some they teach no other doctrine. And he indicated that these teachers of the law didn't even understand what they were teaching or affirming. They had lost sight of the whole purpose of God's revelation. It's not for just mere knowledge. It's not for showing off your intellect. It is for changing the sinner to be more like God. From taking the unrighteous and making him live a righteous life by God's grace. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, he'd speak of some false teachers who have undermined and put out the power of godliness. They don't allow the gospel to take full effect. And so this is a practical knowledge that Peter talks about in his second epistle, that we grow not just in knowledge, but in grace and knowledge. We let God's grace transform our lives. And this is what Paul meant in Galatians 2 and verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And before we try to apply that, we've got to understand that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You can't be ignorant of God's will and fulfill this verse. And so we need to grow in knowledge. We need to have our lives characterized by the knowledge of God. We need to be reading our Bible incessantly. We need to be studying, but we need to be doing it not with the edge to gain against someone else that I know more than you or that I'm equipped now within myself to do great things, but to allow God's grace to transform us, to allow Christ in to take over completely. That's the story we should be writing. We should be writing a story of amassing wealth, but not wealth of any physical nature, but of a spiritual nature. In Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus noted the folly of putting our focus on the physical. He tells us, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We need to be able to differentiate between the value of the seen and that of the unseen. Because what is unseen is incorruptible. It's undefiled. It's something that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for us, Peter says in 1 Peter. Everything we have in our physical possession, though, can be stolen. It can be broken. It will eventually be corrupted and fade away. There is treasure we can amass in heaven. And that should be our focus. We see the great contrast in 1 Timothy 6 when Paul told people to be wary of riches and the aim to become rich. You fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful lusts. And then he tells the rich to not be haughty or trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. And that they are to do good and be rich in good works. And I think that if we thought about the good deed we did to someone or the good thing we said, or the evangelistic attempts we made with those lost in the communities as gold, as silver, as treasure to amass for a wonderful retirement. Maybe we'd do it a little more. And I think that's just a shame to us. We're amassing wealth that cannot even be comprehended when we are doing the Lord's will. And I think writing a story of, of great family involvement and great family experiences and memories is a great thing. I want to tell you the greatest family that you can be tied to is your spiritual family. And I want us to think about that even further than what we even have here, though that's certainly the point and it's important. But remember that Jesus had said in Matthew chapter 12 that the people who do my will are my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Think about that in respect to Hebrews, the 12th chapter. In verse 22, he encourages them that they have not come to Mount Sinai, that mountain of fear, but you have come to Mount Zion, Hebrews 12, 22, into the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable company of angels. And then he says to the general assembly in the church of the firstborn, people of faith everywhere, people of Christians who are Christians, who are registered in heaven. And then he says to the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect. He had just given attention 
in pretty great detail in chapter 11 to heroes of faith. And he's doing that to Jews because they love Moses. They love Abraham. They, they think about those great people of faith and they treasure their legacy and they want to be identified with them. They're Jews. And he says the way you do that is living by faith. So who do you want to be identified with? Who's your family? It's not people that live ungodly lives. It's not people that don't respect the Lord, who don't love the Lord. It's people like Moses, people like Abraham, people like Paul and Peter. They're your family. And that's what we should value. And lastly, what legacy are we leaving? You know, I think if we leave a legacy of faith, we'll leave an imprint on society. Whether society at large knows it or not, that that should be what we're aiming to leave. Timothy's mother and grandmother left a legacy of faith, which was carried on by him in the life that he lived. Paul remembered it. Certainly Timothy remembered it. We should be leaving behind something that is worth something. And it doesn't matter how much money you leave your family. It doesn't matter how much property you leave your family. In the grand scheme of things, that's nothing. Leave them something of spiritual value. I think we remember well what is said of Abel in the chapter of faith in Hebrews 11 and verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts. And through it, he being dead, still speaks. What will you still be speaking after your death? Well, people only remember you because of your knowledge in general, because of your wealth, because of your status among your peers or society in general, or will they remember that you are a man or woman of faith? Will they remember that you put all your focus on the eternal and that you are not regretting anything having passed from this life, but you are rejoicing and you're being comforted and you have hope? What story are we writing? What will your story be? We need to think about that every single day as we take action and we give thought. We need to write the story that God wants us to write, a story of faith in Him and of hope of being with Him for eternity. Before we dismiss to our classes, we'll be led in a word of closing prayer.